If your picture of the Apostle Paul is that he is always up and smiling, celebrating gigantic crowds of enthusiastic followers wherever he went, it's time to open Acts, the true history of the first century church, and join Paul as he enters the Vegas of the ancient world. Let's see what we can learn about how to keep going when we feel like a failure in a rough environment of sex and sales. Any of you ever try to present the gospel to a friend and they didn't listen? How many of you have ever been at a family gathering where you tried to get across who Jesus was? Maybe you just tried to pray and somebody really shut you down. Anybody ever had that happen? Okay. How did that make you feel? When you're at work, are any of you in situations where you're a little bit afraid to talk about Jesus? And even at lunch and stuff when you're on break, anybody have anybody at work that slanders you or says bad things about you or even worse to me like one of the worst things is when people ignore you now the pact we're going to do today it really encourages me to be honest with you like one of the things that does encourage me is that in our culture in american evangelicalism there's some really powerful orators i mean they're on the media you can see them all over the place they're always smiling and they're always happy and they have gigantic crowds and everybody loves them. Everybody responds. Anybody ever see that? And I want you to know that as a pastor teacher, that really discourages me. Because to be honest with you, that's just not in the years that I ministered. When I tell the truth about Jesus, and when I try to really interact with people about Jesus, sometimes they completely turn it off. In fact, sometimes if I'm really going to tell the truth about Jesus, I can't just tell an audience what they want to hear. I have to tell them what they need to hear. Because just like a good doctor, like, do you really want to go to a doctor that makes you feel good? And then if you have cancer, they're going to tell you that it's okay, that we're going to help you to feel really good while you have cancer. If you have a cancer that can be treated, do you really want a doctor to tell you that cancer's okay and we're not going to talk about cancer because it's kind of controversial and we're not going to tell you how to get cured? Do you really want to go to a doctor that makes you feel good about something that's going to kill you. What do you think? How many of you think of the Apostle Paul as being strong and always powerful and always up? Most people feel the Apostle Paul is always up. He's always strong. He's kind of like one of those big media people that seem like they walk on water all the time. One of the things I pray that the Lord will use are teaching the book of Acts and then just going through the book of Colossians like I just shared with you up in Canada reminded me again about the meaning is in the text. Go and read about Paul. And Acts chapter 18 gives us an incredible place to be able to do that because we get to see the Apostle Paul at a really vulnerable time. We just finished studying Acts 17, and that was the Apostle Paul speaking at the Areopagus, which was like the Harvard University or the Yale University of the ancient world, you might say. It was the center of intellectualism. And to be honest with you, things really didn't go well in the city of Athens. There was a church that was founded there. There's priests and, and churches that developed. We know from second century church history. So it wasn't a total loss. But there's no letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. How many of you ever read the letter to the Athenians? How many of you have ever read the letter to the Corinthians? Now, if I would have bet on it, it was a much more powerful thing that the Apostle Paul would reach Athens. He was an intellectual rabbi. 
He was trained as a Hellene, a good Greek scholar as well. He gave an incredible message in Acts 17 that we got to study about that used incredible apologetics, really led people to the resurrected Jesus. And then the audience, very few respond. Demetrius responded, few women responded, very small group. Most of them did the worst thing that you can ever do to a, a preacher or a teacher, and that just ignore them. You know, just act and just let them just say, well, we'll hear you again, but you don't really intend to do that, and you're disconnected with them. That's the most discouraging thing you can do to someone that's trying to teach you. And that's what they did to Paul. So he left Athens, and he went down to Corinth, and this is the most unlikely place. I want to tell you about Corinth. Corinth, in 147 B.C., the Corinthians decided, they were a really prosperous city, they decided that they would rebel against the Romans. They formed what was called the Macedonian League, which reminded them of Alexander the Great and all the great victories. They formed this Macedonian League, and they got a ragtag army together of 14,000 infantry, 600 cavalry. The only problem is the Roman army came against them with 23,000 crack Roman infantry and 3,500 cavalry. Now, you do the math. Who do you think won the battle? The Romans just destroyed the Corinthian army. They went into the city. They looted it. They relatively destroyed the city. They didn't just level it because it's too important a city. But then in 44 B.C., Julius Caesar. See, if you look on a map, and you, you all can do this now on Google, you can just put Corinth, do a search, and you can actually even have live pictures of the ancient city of Corinth and see the canal and everything. But just to remind you this morning, you have mainland Greece to the north, you know how Greece goes, and then you have this little bitty slither of land and then what they call the Peloponnese. Anybody ever heard of the Peloponnese? Well, now you learn something new. You learn something true. The Peloponnese is that southern part of Greece that looks like it's all intersected with the sea. Mary and I have actually been there. It's gorgeous. It's this incredible blend of sky, mountain, and sea. And Corinth was right at that slither of land. In fact, all the way through the ancient world, they kept debating about building a canal, and they'd make all these plans to build it. Finally, in the modern world, they did build a canal so that you wouldn't have to go all the way around the coast of the Peloponnese, and then it was very dangerous out in the open water. You're able to go right through this nice, calm land. That's what made Corinth so special, and that's the city that Paul came to. Julius Caesar sent a bunch of Romans there, a bunch of freemen, people that used to be slaves, needed new location, good business people. And in 44 BC, they founded this new city. By the time Paul comes in about 49 or 50 or so, this city is blowing and going. And it's like the Vegas of the ancient world only. It's more like the New Orleans or the Miami of the ancient world. That would probably be more accurate to be really truthful. They didn't gamble so much in Corinth, although I'm sure they gambled a little bit. And the stories about the thousand prostitutes coming down is Strabo, who was a Roman historian. He was probably stretching things a little bit. What I know for sure about Corinth is it was a trade city. It was like New Orleans when it was really blowing and going. It was like Houston when it's really blowing and going. And when you have a trade city, and if you look at Corinth, north and south roads and east-west roads all connect in that city. So you got a mix of culture. you got Jews that have been resettled there, synagogues built in the city. you got a lot of entrepreneurial tradesmen. It's a great place. Those of you that are in business, Corinth was the place to go. And it's exploding when the Apostle Paul comes there in about 50, uh, 51 AD, okay? Now, he's discouraged when he walked into the city. And what we're going to learn 
from this text is how the great Apostle Paul responded when he felt like his message was being rejected and he was depressed and he was all by himself. Anybody ever feel like that? Good. Look at Acts chapter 18. You're going to have a friend. And unlike what you think, the Apostle Paul isn't just going to tell you to buck up, but he's also going to tell us how to keep going. Look what it says in chapter 18, verse 1. It says, after this, that's after what I just told you about, Paul's speech to the Athenians, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. And now you know a little bit about this trade city in the ancient world. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. Just so you know where Pontus is, Pontus is on the coast of the Black Sea. It's the northern part of Turkey. So you can check that on the map. In fact, Peter wrote first and second Peter. Pontus is part of the area that they're speaking to. He's a native of Pontus, so you'll know where it is. And this guy moves around with his wife Priscilla. It says he had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Are any of you concerned about all the changes taking place? For example, this is Paul Zip and Michelle's last Sunday with us. Trade is moving them down to Kerrville. So that's changed. Tim and Becky Wallace, I just got a text message. They made it all the way to Rainbow City. They're now in Alabama. Pray the Lord for that. One of the things I want you to realize about life, life constantly changes, and we tend to resist change. Priscilla and Aquila, they're business people. I want to teach you business people too. You got to be willing to move. It doesn't mean that the Lord always wants you to move, but the way that the Lord has ordained life is you got to keep on going. If you're suddenly thrown out of Italy, like Claudius, the Roman Empire, do you, do you really have control over what Claudius does when he gets mad at the Jews and you got to really blow in and go in business in Rome and suddenly the Roman Emperor says, you're out of here. How are you going to respond to that? Priscilla and Aquila teach you how to respond. They get up and they go to another trade city. Corinth was a good place for them to go. And because they were on the move, they didn't get discouraged. They didn't just sit and drink. They didn't just sit and cry. They didn't just sit and, and mooch off family members that are working jobs. That gets a little bit convicting. They moved. They kept going. And the Word of God teaches us that. you got to keep on moving. So Priscilla and Aquila, they respond to the edict, and it says that they come, and they left Rome, and Paul went to see them. The next verse tells us in verse 3 why Paul went to see them, because he was a tent maker, Priscilla and Aquila are tent makers, and he stayed, and he worked with them. And every Sabbath day, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Gentiles. That's what's going on there. Some really practical things we can learn. We can learn some things about business people, And we can learn some things about apostles that are gifted primarily to teach the word, okay? In our culture, we have a big divide. There's us ministers, you know, the professionals that do the teaching, and we don't do beans with our hands. In fact, I ever ask you, your general opinion of ministers, do you really want them to try to build your house? Okay? We have a big divide in our culture. One of the things I want all of you to understand, and as we raise our kids and everything else, In the first century, and also in the Jewish rabbi training, they didn't divide those things. How many of you are in business? Priscilla and Aquila are your patron saint. How many of you realize that your business, your tent making, is your key to reaching people for Jesus? It's one of the major things that the Lord is going to use to touch lives for Jesus. You hear what I just said? 
So you think the way the Lord really reaches people for Jesus is what we're doing right now Sunday morning. If I were to ask you, how many of you come to a time in your life where you have asked Jesus into your heart, what percentage of this audience this morning you think has received Jesus? If we're going to have an evangelistic service, we are fishing in a fish tank. You don't catch northern pike in fish tanks. You got to get out in the river. The Severn River goes all the way to the Atlantic eventually, right through Ontario. So you never know what you're going to catch. They caught an 1,100-pound sturgeon in one of those rivers while I was up there. The Canadians were all excited. Biggest freshwater fish they ever caught. But they didn't catch it putting their little hook in fish tanks in their house. So that's one of the things that Priscilla and Aquila convict us about. Priscilla and Aquila are tent makers. They worked with leather. It, it's really hard to figure out what they did. In fact, there's even debate in scholarship that they might have been setting up the props for the theater, only that's so controversial. You could never tell a group of born-again believers that Paul somehow was making props for the theater. So that probably is out. The word in, in Greek is a word that means temporary building that you put up. So whatever he did, maybe he was the Home Depot in the ancient world. I have no idea. And I think the reason the Lord does that is one thing I've learned is to be sensitive to the ambiguity. If I could tell you exactly what Paul did, you'd all think either that was really holy or you'd think, well, that has no relevance. So the Lord doesn't tell you exactly what Priscilla and Aquila did, so you can't compare But the principle drives home to you. And one of the things that's really important in getting the gospel out is that you realize that your tent making, your work, is where it happens. Because that's where you get normal relationships. In fact, these days, that's where you get travel. That's where you get connections with people that are just normal connections. In other words, for example, if I go out on the street corner, which really will work in New York, but if I go on the street corner in Midlothian and start handing out tracts, how effective do you think that'll really be in Midlothian? What I'm saying is I'm not so sure that'll be culturally relevant, but if, but if you're a business person, you have new business opportunities, you have new ideas, and you're sitting drinking coffee, every restaurant you go into, you see business people coming in, you're an investment broker like Gatlin, is. I could go on and on, you know, you're a new policeman like Brett is. There's all this contact that you have. And one of the things I want to set you free for, you're in a culture where unlike my friend in Chicago, you're really not going to get a lot of flack in Midlothian for going public about Jesus. So do it. Will you do it? I want you to realize you are just as ordained to present the gospel as I am. The second thing I want you to see is that the Apostle Paul sought them out and he joined them in their tent making. And then every Sabbath, He went down and made the point of connection that I've been teaching about in our series. What we do as evangelicals, for years we built our movement by doing really hot, it's the equivalent of doing a rock concert. When I was raised, we would do really powerful Christian programs, and all the unbelievers would come to it. Young Life was built on that. World Life was built on that. We'd do skit night on Saturday night, and and we'd ride motorcycles in and right into the auditorium, and we do all these crazy things, and, at the, and all the teenagers would come to that, and then we present the gospel to them. The problem with the teenagers now is they're all watching their iPhones. And also, if they really want to go to a really exciting thing, try to beat the new Batman in causing kids to have real adrenaline rushes. See, we got to figure out, this is really important, I want you to pray about it. Young people really need to learn your career. They need to learn your work. Paul says he worked with his hands. Up in Canada, 
Mary connected with a lady named Tammy. She's a powerful business person. She and her husband both own businesses. You know what Tammy hung out with Mary to do? Mary went once to the wool store. She went how many times, Mary? Three times? Five times. I got news for you. They know how to do accounting. They learned that at the University of Texas. But nobody ever showed them how to make an apple pie or knitting or crocheting, all the skills. See, what comes around, comes around. There's tremendous vacuums that develop, and you don't want to figure out what people are presently doing, Steve Jobs teaches. You want to figure out what people really need to do. If you only set up an opportunity, what they'll die to do. Same thing with you guys. Like, some of you guys are really good at building things up. There's a whole bunch of young boys and young men that don't know how to frame things, don't know how to build a dock out. And I'm just using illustrations. You take it from there. And that's what we want to get going in our church family. That's the first thing that we learn from this. And if you're going to be a minister of the gospel, one of the things you want to learn is you need to have a skill. You need to be able to put food in your stomach, not just based upon the fact that people give you gifts. Now, I want to really stress this passage is going to be balanced. The Macedonians are going to send a really gracious gift to the Apostle Paul which frees them up for full-time ministry. But one of the things that's happened in mission work, and this is really strategic today, we sent a whole bunch of missionaries to the foreign field, into third-world developing countries, okay? They're Americans. And when they go, they have support. Now, just imagine somebody comes to Midlothian from New York State, like I did. And all they do is meet in coffee houses and run outreach programs, you never see them doing anything practically to put food in their stomach. What are you going to think about that person? Well, I share with you what happened in the history of missions is the Western world was ruling. So when you send an Englishman from England to India, they're part of the ruling class. The Indians understand These guys are supported by the colonial powers. And now one of the biggest problems we have in reaching India is to try to convince an Indian, hey, when we tell you that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he rose again, we're not asking you to accept Victorian values. We're not asking you to drink tea. We're not asking you to build houses like the Englishman did. You can just be an Indian. We want to reach you for Jesus. And those missionaries that reach Indians actually got out. Same thing happened in China. That's what the China Inland Mission was. Hudson Taylor said all the missionaries are sitting on the coast, meeting together in their own little things, inviting Chinamen to come and meet with them. It ain't going to happen. So he took off his English clothes, put on his Chinaman uniform, grow his pigtail out, and he went out. That's why it's called the China Inland Mission. You understand the principle I'm talking about? you got to connect with people. Like up in Canada, it was fishing with Kevin. Kevin won the pike championship for the Muscova Lake region, which is a big thing. He says, Dave, would you ever go fishing with me? Yeah, I'd love to. Well, it's in the boat that Kevin tells you about the struggles that he's having in relationships. It's in the boat that you find out about his needs. It's listening. It's asking questions. And it's also in the boat where he finds out, hey, I really do know how to make a Texas rig. And I really can catch a bath. Suddenly, when I speak to him that night, I'm not such a distant person. That makes sense? And I'm trying to teach young pastors that, trying to teach old pastors that, and I'm trying to live that. And I want to bless you in that. The very first thing we learn in this text is there's power 
in the ministry in using your hands to meet your need. Very powerful thing. Everybody got it? So if you thought of some opportunities already, I hope I just, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit is going to stimulate some incredible creativity from what I just said. The second thing is you need to use your point of contact. That verse is four and five. The normal point of contact in Corinth was not with, if there weren't prostitutes in the city, and I know there were some, the, the chaplain of Bourbon Street really isn't a good place to start. I'm not saying that they don't have needs, but that's probably not a really good place to start a Jesus movement. You'll end up immoral, which is what happens again and again in our movement. In every culture, there's places and there's people that have, by common grace, the Lord's working in their heart. They're interested. Our whole church got started in a home because people were interested in learning a little bit about the Bible. And that goes on and on and on. In the Apostle Paul's day, there was all the Jews and then a lot of Gentiles that were interested in spiritual things. They called them the God-fears. They were God-respecting, like Cornelius. Remember we studied about Cornelius? In Corinth, there was a synagogue, just like there was in Pisidian Antioch, just like there was in Jerusalem. There were synagogues, and Paul made that point of connection. And he went every single week, and it tells us what he did. He debated with them. He tried to prove that Jesus was the Christ. You get that in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching the gospel. I want you to see the balance in the text, because Christendom moves back and forth. Fully paid minister, you know, non-paid ministers at all. And the churches that I, as I travel around in ministry, you have some churches that they starve their pastors, and they never set them up free to be able to study and teach. Others do it way too much. The incredible thing about God's word is always the balance. When Paul had his sidekicks come and he could devote himself exclusively to his main task of declaring the gospel, then he did it. Paul stayed focused on the gospel. As I work with bivocational pastors, the problem is they get so involved in making money that they forget about the gospel. Like in Hawaii, for example, one of the hard things in reaching people in Hawaii is the sons and daughters of the missionaries that went to Hawaii became the ones that owned all the pineapple plantations and controlled all the wealth. So how do you think the native Hawaiians felt about Jesus? You see, the second generation realized, man, this is an incredible island. We can make big bucks, and they did. But they forgot about Jesus. You gotta, you gotta feel the story. You gotta hear what Dr. Luke is teaching us because he's got incredible insight into where you live and I live. And he has an incredible balance. He has an art. He doesn't go off on tangents. He, he causes us to realize a pastor like Paul could work with his hands. He, he can relate to workers, but he also kept his priorities to teach the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And when he had the opportunity to devote himself fully to that ministry, he took advantage of it. It says, but when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest. And he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is the third thing. We need to use points of context to dialogue about Jesus. Then we need to change venues when we're slandered and rejected. You say, Dave, what's going on here? Paul argued persuasively. He showed from the Jewish scriptures Jesus was the one that fulfilled all the clues that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the anointed one from the Old Testament. Any church that you go, here's the question you want to ask when you travel, whenever you're trying to find a Bible-believing church. Just ask the pastor, do you believe Jews need to receive Jesus as their Messiah in order to get to heaven? 
Did everybody hear what I just said? You say, Dave, how do I know whether this is a really good church where I should go? You can walk in the door, go over to the pastor and say, sir, in your viewpoint, does a Jewish person have to receive Jesus as their anointed one that fulfills the Old Testament promises? And you'll know just like that whether they believe the truth. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you can't just have this idea that Jesus is for us as Gentiles, but he isn't for Jews and he isn't for Hindus and he isn't for Buddhists and he isn't for people that live in other countries. Because I got news for you. The Jesus that the Apostle Paul was arguing in the Jewish synagogue, he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's not just a great prophet, not just a great teacher. He's definitely not a, a, a moral teacher that'll tell you how to live a good life. That's not Jesus. You need to believe Jesus is the son of David that fulfilled all the promises that were all completed at least 400 years before Jesus came. And he came and he was Jewish and he offered himself as the Jewish Messiah and he hung on the cross and he's the only one that's ever lived that rose again. And then he ascended to heaven and right now he's at the right hand of God. And Jewish people like Rahul Emanuel in Chicago, you need to pray for him. Don't curse him. He needs the Messiah. You hear what I just said? He needs the Messiah. And I totally understand. It's totally politically incorrect. But you need to be really clear on it because your eternal destiny. I just had prayer with our elders and other leaders with Ethan. And Ethan's going for another battery of, of treatment in San Francisco. We need to really pray for him. But Ethan told me this. He told all of us there. He says, I'm going to be healed because I'm going to go to heaven. If, if I lose my physical life, I'm going to go to heaven. He just said that, just, just straight up. How do you know that? Do you believe that? How many of you believe that? It's mad as he prayed, prayed, Lord, thank you for the truth of Jesus. Thank you for helping my son to understand it. The gist of his prayer was, thank you that I can never lose my son completely. That's what we're about, and that's why we need to share it with people in the marketplace, and that's why you can't let it go. You need to understand something. Don't keep batting your head. Like if your family mocks you and they slander you, say, Dave, what should I do? Let it go. Don't shake your clothes off at a Thanksgiving dinner and leave. Don't do that, okay? I want you to see something else in this passage. The next verse, right after it says that, then Paul left the synagogue and went to the next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, and Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard in him, heard about Crispus receiving Christ, believed and were baptized. So this is something I want you to really understand. Again, the balance. Our modern culture would say this is very anti-Semitic. Paul shook off his clothes, rejected the Jews. That's not what happened. Paul is Jewish. He's ethnically Jewish. He's doing what Jews do. He debated with them. And it's a big debate in the first century, and it didn't go very well. One small group of Jews said, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, they were a large group, and they became the foundation of our movement. Another group said, no, we reject it completely. We don't buy the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, and that became rabbinic Judaism. And the Apostle Paul has the courage to say, you're responsible. This is real important in working with people. So what you do with your family, you need to make the gospel of Jesus Christ clear. You need to make it really clear 
that you're not talking about being a goody, 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 born-again person. You don't feel that you're better than them. You have to answer all those things. You have to explain to them that there really is a resurrected Jesus that wants to come into their life. You need to explain the gospel of grace. Every one of you needs to make sure that you do that with your family, with the people you work with, with your friends. You got it? And that takes courage. Some of you have friendship for years. And if I were to ask your unbelieving friends, what, does, what do your friends believe? They'll say, well, they go to church all the time. And I can't for the life of me figure out why they go to church all the time. And they even tell me about all the fights they have at church sometimes. And man, that doesn't seem to make any sense. Why don't they just stay and drink beer with us on Saturday night? You see what I'm saying? If you don't clarify then all the stereotypes that your unbelieving friends have, they just get confirmed. But once you make the gospel clear and they reject it and they start attacking you, let it go. One of my students just told me the other day in class, he says, Dave, during break, he says, I'm a Golden Gloves boxer. And the hardest thing in Golden Gloves boxing is my uncle's teaching me to do it when I was a kid. He said, the hardest thing to do was to lean into a punch and turn my head. Because I wanted to resist it. I wanted to step back and hit harder. But when I stepped back, the punch had a longer drive. It's like getting kicked by a cow. And also, when I step back, I'm off balance and I can't thrust the punch hard here. So what I needed to learn was I needed to learn to give in to the punch. When I saw it coming, I needed to lean in and then turn my head so that you know, they wouldn't get a direct shot. You need to learn to do that when you're fighting with people. And I need to learn. It goes totally against my New York, New Jersey upbringing. When someone hits you, and this is not good boxing, but put down your hand and let it go. Like when you start getting the defamation, when you start getting the slander, this will work in your business. Brett needs to learn this as a new policeman. I'm sure he's been taught this. Like if you're a policeman, you pick someone up and they get mad at you. You don't go, I'm going to pull my gun out and we're going to see who's the authority here. What happens then? Somebody dies. All the police officers can affirm this. When someone's really angry, you slow things down. You back away. You let it go. You saw that the other day in Dallas. You saw a preacher doing this marvelously. He's hugging people in South Dallas. The police officers don't say a word. We need to learn to do that in opposition. So learn when you're getting really attacked, Paul learns how to respond. He moves to another location. He moves next door. And the critical scholar would say, well, that was mean. It wasn't mean at all. Paul really believes in the truth. He doesn't go too far. If a Jewish person wants to find out about Jesus the Messiah, they just have to go next door. So when we leave, we don't just do it in anger. Paul goes next door. He puts responsibility on them. And Luke goes on to tell us a story about how the Lord kept reaching Jews. And even the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, came to know Jesus as his Messiah. Isn't that incredible? Then he closes with where I started. He says this. One night, verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Some of you need to hear that. And you don't need to wait for a vision. The Lord Jesus this morning is saying to every one of you, don't be afraid. Jesus in your heart. So are you afraid this morning? You're really afraid? Afraid about economic, afraid about job, afraid about the country, afraid about unbelieving relatives, all it goes on and on and on. Lots of things I'm afraid of. And we need to hear the incredible voice of Jesus. I just pray that the Spirit of God would sweep upon your heart this morning to hear what Paul heard. Don't be afraid. Then he says this. 
Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Will you do that? Don't be afraid. I want you to keep on telling others about Jesus. I don't want you to be silent. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, Paul, I know you're hurt. I know that you faced slander. And here you are in Corinth again. And you're getting the same abuse. And Jesus appears to him and says, don't be afraid, Paul. He says, keep on speaking. Don't be silent. And then he says a really powerful thing. He says, I am with you. I am with you. In the book of Genesis, when Joseph is in prison, it says, I am with you. Then he says, no one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for another year and a half teaching the word of God. And then the next paragraph we'll look at the next time we get together, talked about how the Lord came through in that promise. Isn't that marvelous? You know what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Keep on talking about Jesus and don't be silent. Because the Lord has many, many people in this city. Isn't that an incredible comfort this morning? Incredible gift. Don't be afraid. The Lord is with us. We need to keep on speaking. And I pray that the Lord is going to generate a whole lot of ideas about how you can make real connections with unbelievers. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. 